Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, June 21st, 2020, and this is show number 789. Well, things are looking pretty good for the show next week for Steve and My Little Holiday, where we're going to change which house we hunker down in. We've got contributions already in from Jill, John, Shy, and Marty, but there's definitely room for a few more. We will have security bits with Bart, so it should be a nice full show where I don't have to do much work. So thanks to all the contributors for giving me some time to walk away from the keyboard and microphone and maybe play in the pool with my grandkids. Tomorrow is WWDC Day as I'm talking to you, so I hope you remember that Steve and I will be hanging out with the other Nocilla Castaways in the chat room. You can find it at podfeed.com chat. That link will get you right into Discord to download the app if you don't have it and into the chat room if you already have Discord. If you'd rather play in the web interface, you can go to podfeet.com live where you'll see an embedded Discord chat window. You'll also see the live video where we would be broadcasting normally in the live show, but we won't be broadcasting during WWDC. We'll just be in chat. Hope to see a lot of you there to make some brilliant comments, uh, like one of the all-time Nocillacastway favorites, which is, Dagnabbit, my feet is behind. How are you watching? Well, I don't often recommend other podcasts because, (laughs) to be honest, I don't want you to listen to any shows but mine. I'm going to break that rule, though, and recommend a new show by Daily Tech News Show's host, Tom Merritt. He started a podcast called Know a Little More, where he's going to do a deep dive explanation into different tech topics. I love this idea because Tom already does a lot of research before he discusses a topic, and he makes sure he really understands things that he's going to talk about. And he's he's really good at breaking down concepts. The first real episode came out this week, and it's all about 5G. Now, I'm reasonably bright, and I'm an engineer, and I've been paying attention to the topic, and yet I had no idea why 5G was so important and what it will allow us to do. I think you'll enjoy this show too, and you'll definitely learn a lot. Check it out in your podcatcher of choice by searching for Know a Little More, or you can listen along at knowalittlemore.com. You know, I'm a huge fan of the company Rogue Amoeba, and you've heard me sing the virtues of Audio Hijack at least 237 times so far. I've also mentioned their application Loopback a few times in the past, but I've never done a full review of what you can do with this amazing tool. Let's fix that oversight today. I should mention that if you want to truly learn to use Loopback, in my humble opinion, the best way to do that is to watch the video tutorial I did recently for Screencast Online. Now, Screencast Online is a subscription service, but you can get a free trial and watch this tutorial. Now, I'm not just shilling for Screencast Online by suggesting this. I'm going to be explaining Loopback to you today, but if you buy it and you want to learn the tool inside and out, I think my tutorials are a really good way to learn to actually use the software. So let's start with the basic problem to be solved. In order to have people hear your audio, you have to send it to them from a physical microphone. This physical device could be a fancy big girl mic like a Heil PR40 or something as simple as the internal mic built into your Mac. But what if you want someone to hear something other than just your voice? Let's say you've got an audio recording that you can play on your Mac in QuickTime. How could you share that audio in real time? QuickTime is an application, not a physical hardware device, so you can't just choose it from the sound input preference pane. You don't have to be a podcaster to want to be able to do something like this. 
With all of the video conference calling going on for school and work and just plain socializing, there are plenty of opportunities where you might want to be able to share audio with other people. The interface for Loopback has a left column where it lists all of your devices. These will be your virtual devices, which will be made up of physical devices and other virtual devices you've previously created. The right half of the interface has three columns. It shows sources, output channels, and monitors. Let's say I'm a teacher and I need to find a way to pipe my voice from my microphone and the audio from QuickTime to my students on a Zoom call. In the left column, I'll hit the plus button at the bottom that's labeled new virtual device. This will create a virtual device in the left column enabled loopback audio. You'll also get the same name in the right half of the interface and it'll be highlighted inviting you to rename it. We can rename that say to Mike plus QuickTime. If you get to rename it right away, you'll always have a little pencil to the right of the name to enable editing later. Now before doing anything else, on the right side, we immediately have a block under sources called pass-through, and under output channels, it has a block called channels one and two. Those get created automatically. Pass-through is what Loopback calls a virtual device. A pass-through virtual device is what allows you to use applications combined with physical devices as a single input to another application, because we want to be able to have both my voice and QuickTime going into Zoom. So we need to create this pass-through device in between these two applications. The crazy thing is that virtual devices can be inputs and outputs at the same time. In our example, QuickTime is an app that goes as an input to a pass-through virtual device. And then the output of that same pass-through virtual device becomes the input to Zoom. It's an odd concept, but once you come to peace with it, it makes perfect sense. Now back to our Mike plus QuickTime example. I said there's a source column and there's a plus sign next to it with a little dropdown. We want to add two sources, our physical microphone and the application QuickTime. Under the plus dropdown, we can see our currently running applications, special sources, which we'll come back to later, our physical audio devices, and any virtual devices you may have already created. If QuickTime isn't running, you'll also get an option to select application and add it from the finder. We can repeat this process, hit the plus button, and now choose our microphone. As I was working on this in, uh, in the screenshot you'll see, my microphone is called Sure Digital. As we add in these sources, they get neatly stacked in the left-hand column. We can delete the default pass-through virtual device that was there when we first started by simply selecting the block and hitting Command-Delete. Command-Delete is the way you delete all sorts of things in loopback, but here's a warning. There is no undo in loopback. No takesies-backsies. Luckily, things are very easy to recreate in loopback, so it's not too big of a deal, but think about it before you hit Command-Delete. Now, with this bare-bones setup, we can pipe audio from our mic or QuickTime or even both at the same time. Simply open up Sound Preferences and flip to the Input tab, and you can choose Mic plus QuickTime. It'll be right there with all of your physical devices. Now in Zoom or Skype or FaceTime or whatever tool you're using, when you look at the audio input settings, there too you'll see an option to choose Mic plus QuickTime. Now if this is all Loopback could do, it would be a pretty powerful tool, but it does a lot more. Now I probably should have told you sooner, but Loopback is $100. Now I use Loopback all the time, but that's a lot of money, so let's see if it can do more for you to be worth that hefty price tag. 
In our virtual source, Mike plus QuickTime, each source block we dropped in has quite a few options. There's an on-off toggle on each block, so you could keep QuickTime off for most of the time and only toggle it on when you're going to use it, all without changing your input. Or maybe while QuickTime is playing, you want to temporarily mute your microphone so you can eat a crunchy apple while your students are listening to something. By default, each source is on both the left and right channels. This is shown in a really beautiful and unusual interface element. Remember that I said I've, we've got an output channel block? The input sources have little virtual wires going into that output channels block. You can select these individually and then delete them and even draw new wires. Let's say your QuickTime files are stereo music with audio on both channels. You could move the little virtual wires so both the left channel and right channel of the QuickTime block when it adjusts the left channel of the output block. Likewise, you could make your mic go into just the right channel of the output block. You do accomplish this by deleting the wires you don't like, and then you click drag to draw new wires. I don't use this feature myself, but I can definitely see it could provide real value, and it's really fun to draw the little wires. While the audio is being passed through this virtual source, you can see meters on the left and right channels for both blocks, and you can see the meters moving differently on the two channels for the output block. Your listeners would still get a stereo file, but it would be your voice on one side and QuickTime on the other. Now, each source block has a chevron to reveal even more options. Within the options, both applications and physical devices have a volume slider. By using this slider, you could play some music while you're talking and have the music at a much lower volume than your microphone. Maybe you're doing commentary on a movie and you have the movie playing in the TV app on your Mac. You could lower the volume of that app while you do your commentary over it. Application blocks, such as the one we made for QuickTime, also have a checkbox to mute when capturing, which is checked on by default. This means that you will not hear QuickTime while using this virtual source we've created. Applications using the loopback virtual audio device will frequently want to perform their own audio playthrough, but simply uncheck the mute when capturing checkbox if you need to hear that audio source. There's another scenario through which you don't want to hear just the application, QuickTime Player in our case, but you would like to monitor the audio from both QuickTime and your own microphone. I mentioned earlier that the last column in loopback is called monitors. Just like with sources, you can add a monitor using the little plus button, but your options are only actual physical devices. From this monitor block, you can change the volume of your output device and again use the little wires to modify what you hear in the left and right channels. Speaking of hearing, like all Rogue Amoeba tools, Loopback 2 was built with full voiceover accessibility from the ground up. Even with my rudimentary skills in voiceover, I was able to figure out how to delete one of those little wires and put it back where I wanted. Now, I don't know how they managed to make something so graphically interesting for those with vision work just as beautifully for those using a screen reader. It's truly extraordinary. Earlier, when we were dropping in sources like applications and physical devices, I mentioned that you can add special sources. The special sources are Finder, Siri, Text-to-Speech, and VoiceOver. Adding a Finder source allows you to capture sound played by the Finder itself, as well as QuickLook. Let's say you've got an MP3 file in the Finder. You can hit the spacebar to launch it in Quick Look, and it will start playing while Loopback routes that audio where you want it. I tested the Quick Look feature, and that worked, but I made some other system sounds like deleting a file from Finder, and it didn't seem to capture it. 
I'm not sure why that didn't work. And yes, I did double check that mute when capturing was unchecked. If you're trying to teach someone how to use Siri on their Mac, or maybe just want to make fun of Siri, you can add it as a special source. You could create a virtual device with Siri plus your microphone, and then use that virtual device as the input to, say, a QuickTime audio recording. Think of the hours of entertainment. You could create a whole podcast around this idea. Text-to-speech is the next option in special sources. Just last week, I gave a tip on how you can change the voice on text-to-speech to the nicer Siri voice using the keystroke Option Escape to read text. You could make a loopback pass-through virtual device with the input source set to text-to-speech and then set it as the input to QuickTime. From there, you could make a new recording and create a file reading the story you didn't have time to read with your eyeballs. Last week, I did this with Audio Hijack, but you could actually do it entirely with loopback. From there, you could make a new audio recording and create a file reading the story you didn't have time to read with your eyeballs. Well, I made myself laugh with that anyway. The last special source is voiceover. Imagine you're working with a screen reader and you want to show someone how you're doing something. You could let Loopback capture voiceover and pipe it to a virtual device along with your microphone and then pipe that to your audio video conferencing application. You could also use it to, say, teach voiceover. You could even use it to show a developer bugs in their software by recording what you're hearing. The possibilities are endless. I've tried to give you examples to inspire your imagination on what cool stuff you could do with Loopback. This application is essential to what I do. In fact, if it weren't for Loopback, the live audience would never be able to hear playback of my recording application along with my voice. Loopback is even more powerful when paired with Audio Hijack from Rogue Amoeba. I want to do a public service announcement here, though. If you get too crazy with Loopback, you could start to have unintended consequences. When I was writing this up, I was making lots of experimental loopback virtual sources. I played something from QuickTime, and suddenly it was coming out of my MacBook Pro's internal speakers and also from my external display speakers, but with a slight delay. I couldn't figure out what was happening. I had created multiple loopback virtual devices that had QuickTime in them, and even though I had mute when capturing turned on... I had a monitor set to my display, and of course, it was slightly delayed from the normal speaker output on my Mac. I recommend that if you start having as much fun with loopback as I do, turn off the virtual devices in the left sidebar until you're ready to use them. It also makes your drop-down list of input devices way shorter if you turn off your more specialized virtual devices. Now, don't forget you turned them off, though, or you'll be really confused when they don't show up when you need them. I know $100 is a lot of money for people, but Loopback from Rogue Amoeba is alone in its capabilities to combine physical devices and applications into virtual sources with this much flexibility. You can find a free trial of Loopback at rogueamoeba.com. And if you can't spell Rogue Amoeba, there's a link in the show notes. Earlier this month, Jonathan, also known as Nuclear John in the Slack and live chats, did a great review of his thought process in choosing a new high-res monitor. In his review, he happened to mention that his plan was to use the internal display on his MacBook Pro as a secondary monitor along with the new big display. In order to make that work well, he purchased the M stand from Rain Design and included a picture for us showing the laptop on the stand. The M stand is basically a beautiful brushed anodized aluminum bent into a stand where the laptop sits high up off the desk and with the base at about like a 20 degree angle downwards. 
The M stand has a little lip on the front to keep your laptop from sliding off. That seemed like a prudent idea. It also has a hole in the back for cable management. This design gives you a place to stash your external keyboard when you're not using it. The M stand comes in silver, gold, or space gray to match your laptop and costs $44.99. I'm sorry, 40 I'll get it yet. $44.90 through raindesigninc.com. Now, I've been thinking of getting a stand, and before I tell you the rest of the story and what I ended up getting, it is probably time to explain the problem to be solved. John and I have almost identical setups. We both have the 16-inch MacBook Pros hooked up to the CalDigit TS3 Plus dock and then to a Thunderbolt 3 LG monitor. Where we differ, and I differ from most people, is in my eyesight. I developed early cataracts in both of my eyes. Now, you might think this was awful news, and financially it was, but it turned out to have a glorious result. I had human-made lenses put in both of my eyes. The financially ruinous part was that I chose to have the crazy astigmatism in the corneas of both eyes corrected by these lenses, rendering them exorbitantly expensive. Now, most people who get cataracts are old enough to have much of the cost covered by Medicare, but I'm too young for that. But here's the sweet part of this. You get to choose the focal length you want for the lenses. I chose computer distance. I mean, seriously, who needs to see far away? I've been wearing long-distance glasses since I was 13 years old, but to be able to see my computers without glasses, that would be glorious. Computer distance is 50 centimeters or around 19 inches. After the surgery, I can now see my giant display in super glorious detail with no corrective lenses. I can even read at a comfortable distance, which is also glorious. But guess what's outside of my focal distance of my new lenses? My laptop sitting at an angle on the desk to the right of my big screen. That means that my laptop screen is only useful as a place to like throw apps I don't need to look at for a while and then either lean way over to see them when necessary or drag them back to the main screen to really use the apps again. My hope was that I could gain the advantages others would find of having a laptop up off the desk and perhaps have the distance improved to where I could actually see it. I mentioned after listening to John's recording that the M stand looked pretty cool, and I'd be wondering if that would help me in my setup. Mike Price, also known as Grumpy in our Slack and live chat, heard me say that and told me he had a stand he wasn't using that he'd be glad to give me if I'd pay the shipping. He said it was the 12th South stand, which provides the same kind of up-off-the-desk-at-an-angle functionality as the Rain Design M stand. I thought, I thought that sounded like a great offer. While Mike went digging into his storage for his 12 South stand, I went to the 12 South website to see what it looked like. I discovered that they had a couple of options, one of which is called the Curve. It looked really sweet. I was hoping that the stand Mike didn't need was indeed the Curve. When Mike found his old stand, he discovered it was the M stand from Rain Design, not the 12 South at all. And then Mike checked out pricing to ship the M stand to me, only to discover it would cost $30 to ship me a $45 stand. As I pondered whether to go that route, I noticed the Rain Design M stand had a little raindrop-shaped hole in the metal that would go under the laptop. That raindrop started looking really familiar to me. And then I realized why it rang such a loud bell. My MacBook Pro was sitting on a Rain Design iLap stand. Now, this one isn't really made for the desktop, but I'd been using it for years to at least get some airflow under the, the laptop. It doesn't lift it up very much, and it's got some big padding on it to make it comfortable in a lap, so it's not really the right uh, device for that job. 
After Mike went to all this work and made such a generous offer, I told him I kept looking at that 12th South curve and thinking how cool it looked and would his feelings be hurt if I bought one instead of paying shipping for his. It was very sweet and he said to go for it. By the way, he says the offer stands to anyone else who wants to cut 15 bucks off the price of the M stand from rain design by just paying the shipping. Now, I entitled this article, Is Higher Better? Because I honestly didn't know what the answer was to that question when I started down this path. I received the curve from 12 South and it was packaged quite elegantly. I know that shouldn't determine how we like a product, but it does point to attention to detail. The curve comes with a little black cloth-like tube snaking around the stand to protect it, while packaging inside a black box with a bright reddish-orange interior. I mentioned this cover snaking around the curve. That description is fitting because the curve is one continuous piece of metal that's 1.5 inches wide. Imagine two arms, one and a half inches wide each, coming down under the laptop and holding it in the air. Those two arms go down to the desk behind the laptop and then curve around towards the front underneath to meet and form a semicircle. It's really elegant and simple in spite of my clumsy explanation. I chose the pure white curve, which is brand named Curve SE. I don't know why it's called SE, but that's what they call it. They designed the white Curve SE to go with modern white furniture, but I chose it because it was a beautiful contrast to my fake red rosewood desk. I excitedly put it on my desk with the Curve name facing up. I was immediately disappointed in the design. While it had a nice rubbery piece all around the semicircular shape to provide some friction, there was no lip at all to keep the laptop from simply sliding off if it was bumped. I couldn't believe I hadn't noticed that in all of my perusing of the imagery online. If any of you were paying attention to my description of the curve, you'll remember I said that the semicircle should be on the desk, not facing up at me. I had it upside down. I flipped it over, and of course, there are lips on the two arms that hold the laptop. In addition, there's even more rubber to provide friction and protection for your laptop. I guess I should have read the manual. The 12th South site says that one of the big advantages of the curve stand is that it brings the laptop up to a more ergonomic level. I am no expert in ergonomics, but as a manager of hundreds of people on computers when I was working, I was taught by our ergonomic folks in the correct height of a display. They told me that you want the top of the display in line with your eyes. One of my complaints with modern displays in general is that even if they're adjustable, the top of them is always significantly higher than my eyes. I'm definitely short-waisted, but even sitting in a chair Steve bought me from a big and tall company, the top of my LG 5K display, pushed down to its lowest position, is nearly three inches above my eye level. The 12 South Curve, however, puts the top of my MacBook Pro screen exactly at my eye level. I have to give it an A-plus for the ergonomic improvement over sitting on my desk where I have to bend my neck down to look at it. Now, for the real problem I needed to solve, bringing the Mac screen close enough that I can focus on it. Since the 16-inch MacBook Pro uses USB-C ports and has two on each side, I have the flexibility of where to plug things in. I've normally always had my dock connected on the left side, and that allowed the cables to snake under my LG display and then behind it to get to the dock. I figured out that with the Curve, if I plug the dock in on the right side instead, I can put the MacBook Pro right up against the right side of the display. I then noticed that the laptop is suspended on those two arms well over an inch farther forward than the Curve underneath. 
That means I can pull the laptop much closer than it was before, letting it almost hang over my trackpad to the right of my keyboard. I do have to scooch my chair forward a little bit to get perfect focus, but it's way, way better than it was before where I pretty much couldn't focus on it at all. This is a huge win. The curve puts the laptop a couple of inches up from the desk in front, and it's tilted downward so it's around 25 degrees from horizontal. And yes, I calculated that and used the arc tangent to do so. One of the things I wondered about was whether it would be comfortable to type on the laptop when it's on the curved stand. In a pinch, I can definitely type on the MacBook Pro when it's in the stand, but it's not a great position. My arms would definitely get tired reaching out and up to it. My ergonomics instructors would shudder at what it was doing to my shoulders. Now, Mike also asked me whether it's bouncy at all, which could go hand in hand with the typing question. The good news is that it's not bouncy at all. It definitely doesn't bounce when you stomp around the room, but I do have it on a very sturdy desk. It moves a little bit when I type, but not much at all. Now, the last piece of the puzzle was my microphone. I have a fancy big girl mic hanging in a vibration isolator on a boom arm. The arm is the $110 Heil PL2T arm, by the way, and it's probably one of my favorite accessories for podcasting. Having that boom allows me to pull the mic over when I'm recording and simply shove it out of the way when I'm not. The good news is that my boom arm is tall enough that it can swing with inches of clearance above my laptop even when it's in the 12th South Curve stand. Now, when Mike and I were discussing the two options for a stand, he brought up the fact that a stand can provide cooling versus having it sit on a desk. He challenged my mechanical engineering knowledge of heat transfer, so I've decided to bore it with you, bore you with it here. Blame Mike, not me. In order of efficiency, there are three types of cooling. Radiation, convection, and conduction. Have you ever been uncomfortably warm? Let's say it's really hot out. Somebody sits next to you with their arm too close to yours and you can actually feel the heat from their skin? That's radiant heat. If you've ever noticed that you feel colder when there's a breeze than if the air is still, you've recognized heat transfer by convection cooling. Finally, if you've grabbed a steel railing when it's cold out and notice that your hand gets much colder immediately, that is conduction. With laptops, cooling is always a big issue. By good old-fashioned radiation, some heat will be dissipated naturally into the air, but that's the least efficient method to get the heat out. Most laptops also have fans inside, which allows for convection cooling on the inside. If you could place your, place your laptop sealed tight onto a giant metal block, the heat would transfer from the laptop right into the metal block using the most efficient heat transfer methods, a method, which is conduction. This would continue until the two were in equilibrium of temperature. Now that doesn't work because your laptop has little rubber feet on it, lifting it up above any surface on which you set it. So you can't actually get any conduction going on when you set your laptop down on any surface. Now that our heat transfer lesson is complete, the question would be which of the two stands might do a better job of keeping your laptop cool? The Raindesign M stand is a piece of metal that covers the bottom of the laptop, so in theory it would help to conduct heat away from the laptop. Since it doesn't actually seal against the bottom, I would suggest that there would actually be a warm pocket of air forming between the two surfaces as the heat radiates out from the laptop. Of course, a little bit would leak out of that little raindrop-shaped hole I mentioned earlier. 
The curve, on the other hand, leaves 80% of the bottom of the laptop open to the air, giving it the full benefits of inefficient radiation cooling and perhaps a bit of convection cooling if there's a window open or a fan in the room, helping to keep the air moving around. I had already decided that I thought the curve was cooler looking, but walking through the heat transfer logic helped seal the deal for me. The 12 South Curve is $60 and comes in black or white, and I think it's a terrific design. I like the height. I like how I can bring it close to me without interfering with my keyboard or trackpad or microphone, and it allows maximum airflow under my laptop for great convection cooling. As you're going to hear later in the show, I spent a wee bit of money this week that is actually mostly for the podcast, so I'm going to start panhandling right now. Frank is not here this week to help me, so I'm going to put it to you this way. If you get value out of the show, like learning about heat transfer, for example, consider going to podfeed.com slash Patreon and signing up to pledge as little as a dollar a week. I wrote 7,296 words worth of blog posts this week. And if you figure I type at around 40 words per minute, and I'm not counting text expander, which helps, of course, that'd be around three hours of typing. And that doesn't even include the research time for what I have to write about. California minimum wage is $12 per hour, so I would need to get 36 of you to pay me a dollar just to break even for the time I spent writing the show. Okay, that's goofy, but you know, it was fun to do the math. If you can afford it, please consider becoming a patron of the PodFeed podcast. If you can't afford it, just call somebody up and tell them to listen to one of the shows. That's good enough. In the earliest days of podcasting, a company called The Conversations Network had a show that used volunteers to record segments for the show. An unfortunate side effect of having all these different contributors was that the volume of the recordings was very uneven. At the Podcast Expo in 2005, Doug Kay of The Conversations Network demonstrated a tool they were using called The Levelator, created by Gigavox Media to level out their audio before publication. Gigavox Media eventually transferred the rights to the Conversations Network, and they eventually released the Levelator to the public for free as a way of helping all podcasts improve their audio quality. It was released for the Mac, Windows, and Linux. It became a favorite tool of podcasters because it was so easy to simply drag an uncompressed audio file onto the Levelator and watch the little animation show progress and they get a beautifully leveled audio file. Over the years, as a public service, I would send podcasters I liked over the years, as a public service, I would send podcasters I liked screenshots of how uneven their audio was between their hosts, and then I would give instructions on how the levelator would instantly fix these problems. The SMR podcast has great audio levels, thanks to my incessant nagging of Chris, Rod, and Rob. The Conversations Network dropped support of the levelator in 2012, though, and when El Capitan was released in 2015, it was no longer compatible. A hack was figured out to keep it working, though, as documented by Tidbits at the time. Then, in a surprise move, the Conversations Network released a slightly tweaked version that worked on the Mac, and there was dancing in the streets of podcaster land. But then, the levelator died again when macOS Catalina came out, which only allows 64-bit software. The people of podcaster land wept. But this week... Rising yet again like a phoenix from the ashes in another surprise move, the Conversations Network released a fully compatible 64-bit version of the Levelator in the Mac App Store. What a welcome surprise. The Levelator is, of course, still free, and it's just as easy to use as it ever was. 
Let me explain the steps to leveling audio with the levelator. Step 1. Open the levelator. Step 2. Drag an uncompressed audio file onto the app. <laughs> That's it. Well, there's one optional step, and that is you can watch the animation of a circle being completed while the levelator does its magic. Seriously, drag, drop, wait, done. That's all you have to do. I put a screenshot in the show notes to show how amazing this tool is. In the upper half of the image, you can see the waveform from a recording Bart and I made together last week. My voice is significantly lower than Bart's in the recording by at least a factor of five. In the bottom half of the screenshot, you can see the effect of the levelator. It took the levelator less than two minutes to transform this nearly one gigabyte audio file from practically unlistenable to awesome. I did a bit of research on the levelator, so I was certain to get my dates right in this article. I came upon the Wikipedia article about the levelator in which it described its death and rebirth with El Capitan and its second death with 64-bit macOS Catalina. I have to say it gave me great delight to be able to edit the Wikipedia article to add the rebirth yet again in 2020. I've never seen an application appear to die off and rise again, not just once, but twice like the Levelator. Podcast listeners everywhere should rejoice that the Conversations Network has brought the Levelator into the modern age with a Mac App Store app. To all of the podcasters to whom I listen who use Macs for the recording, do not even think about not using Levelator because you know I will remind you. Have you noticed in the last few years, new gadgets and even new software don't seem all that different from what we had before? I went from an iPhone 10 to a 10s, and I couldn't tell the difference after about a day. I went from the Apple Watch Series 4 to the Series 5, and I only noticed my battery getting worse. If you have the intelligence and patience to wait longer between upgrades, you'll love the speed difference as you jump from a really old device to a really new one. But are these things fundamentally different? A Series 3 Apple Watch and a Series 5 have the same apps and 90% overlapping functionality. So in some cases, you have to even know to go look for the differences. Steve and I generate a lot of data. In a typical week where Bart and I record security bits and chit-chat across the pond, the nosilicast fa- uh, files add up to 3 gigabytes and chit-chat across the pond is around 4 gigabytes. You can imagine that this data would fill up my internal drive on my laptop pretty darn quickly. Now, Steve doesn't create new files every week, but for the months after CES, he creates hundreds of gigabytes, possibly terabytes, I'm not really sure, of data with the video that he generates for you. Many years ago, we brought a, bought a Drobo FS so we could offload this giant amount of data off of our internal drives. Eventually, we replaced the FS with the Drobo 5N, spending a lot of money to do so, and when I got it all set up, it was essentially the same as the FS, except it was way faster. Oh, sure, the 5N had official app support, while the FS required some jiggery-pokery on the command line, but, you know, the apps for the 5N are not that much to get excited about. The FS lived on as a backup to the 5N in our, daily, in our data storage life. When Drobo offered me a 5N2 to test and let me keep, which I disclosed loudly in my review, I still had to pay a fortune to fill it with 4 terabyte drives. I forget what they cost back then, but today a 4 terabyte Western Digital Black Drive is $170, so 5 of them cost $850. Now remember, that's not the cost of the network storage device, the NAS, that's just the drives to put in the Drobo. I should mention that these were the least expensive available right now for terabyte drives not made by Seagate that I could find. 
The Drobo 5N2 is a lovely piece of kit, but guess what? The interface is identical to the 5N. I still have to use the Drobo dashboard software to interact with the device. Now, while that interface has gotten faster over the years, it's still clunky and uninteresting. The apps you can load are few and not terribly useful. I was unable to even find an application that would allow me to back it up from the 5N2 to the 5N. There is an app, but it's only from 5N2 to 5N2, and I was not going to buy another one of these. But, the, you know, these are computers, not just a bunch of disks, so why aren't they more fun? My main interaction with the Drobos, though, isn't via the Drobo dashboard. Most of the time, I connect to them via the Finder using the handy Go Connect to Server menu, and I connect to them over SMB. So they look like just a bunch of disks to me. Again, getting the 5N2 was about as exciting as going from the iPhone 10 to the iPhone 10s, and about the same cost, even though I didn't even buy that device myself. Last week, the Drobo 5N died. One day it simply said, all of my disks were gone. Can't find them. Don't know where they are. Now, it turns out there's not much you can do about it when a Drobo dies like this. If this Drobo had been my only copy of the data, the only way I could have gotten the data back would be to get another Drobo. Luckily, it wasn't my only copy. It was the backup on the 5N. I have to admit that I had really kind of been hoping the 5N would kick the bucket because I really wanted to get a Synology NAS and get away from Drobo. While the Drobo does its job okay to store data and it gives it back to me via the Finder, that's kind of pretty much most of what it can do. We interviewed the Synology folks a few years ago at CES, and I've been listening to Dave Hamilton on the Mac Geek Gab sing their virtues for years now, and I've really felt like I was missing out on the fun. As soon as the Drobo died, I tasked Stephen Getz with choosing a Synology model for me. He's followed along with my Drobo adventures and was the recipient of my then-functioning and now-dead Drobo FS. Plus, he really likes to spend other people's money. I wanted him to research it for me because while Synology has a nice little selection tool, there are so many models to choose from, I was hoping he'd just narrow it down to a few options for me. I also figured he'd keep him out of my hair for a few days. Well, after about 15 minutes, he sent me his answer, choosing the DS1019+. Of course, I had challenged him with a lot of questions, but he had all the answers. Synology has a good naming convention. Their NAS devices are called disk stations, hence the DS at the front end of the model number. The next digit, or two, tells you how many drives you can put in the model. The DS1019 Plus cannot hold 10 drives, but you can add an expansion unit to it to double the storage from the five internal disks. With five to start with, I can replicate the amount of data I could store on the Drobo 5N2. The last two digits are the model year, so the 19 means it came out in 2019. Finally, the plus at the end of the model apparently means spend more of Allison's money. But seriously, he didn't choose the value series, which is below the plus series, because the most number of drives you can use is four. To be honest, I could have lived with that since I'm only using about 60% of the capacity of my Drobo 5N, but hey, go big or go home, right? I ordered the Synology DS1019 Plus for $649 and three 4TB Western Digital Drives for another $500 from B&H Photo. I had harvested two from the dead Drobo, so I only needed three of those, luckily. Funny how my go-to has switched from Amazon when they dump me as an affiliate, isn't it? I'm not better, I swear it. But actually, I'm interested in getting the accelerator card for the Synology, and B&H had it for a much lower price than Amazon. 
I did hold off on buying it, though, because Stephen Getz explained to me that the Synology will tell me whether I need it or not. Before, I had just blindly bought them for my two Drobos, but could never prove that I actually needed it. My new Synology arrived this week, and Stephen and I have been playing around with it for the last few days. As I hope, the Synology is like nothing I've ever played with before. From a hardware perspective, it's not that much different. You open the doors on the front and you slide in drives. It's a big difference. They're stacked side by side instead of one above the other like the Drobo, but it's not terribly exciting how much different they are in that perspective. But the software and functionality are completely different from the Drobo. This is going to be as different as going from a BlackBerry to an iPhone. You know, technically the BlackBerry had apps, but it was kind of creepy. Anyway, Synology's software is called Disk Station Manager. They abbreviate that DSM. And it's a web interface that looks kind of like a nice Linux desktop environment. There's a good reason for that. DSM is a Linux desktop environment. Now, I usually like to do reviews where I can tell you everything about something. But this one's going to be, it's going to be like a series, kind of a gift that keeps on giving. So far, with Stephen's help, I figured out how to make shared folders and copied some of the more critical data from the Drobo 5N to the Synology. For now, I did it the old-fashioned way by mounting both devices and copying using the Finder. But that's using my Mac to do the copying, so the, the files are going through my Mac and out the other side to the other device. Now, I'm going to have to really shift my brain as I learn about the Synology because it's not just a bunch of disks. By the way, just a bunch of disks is abbreviated JBOD. You can buy units that are JBODs. Now, while those exist, the Synologies are computers with applications and lots of fun tools. I already know that it can serve video and audio and photo files to your network and beyond. You can create your own home cloud service, which is not really technically a cloud since it's inside your network, but provides syncing across devices. You can install an open office clone if you want to migrate away from using Microsoft 365. Now, I know some of that could be done by the Drobo, but I don't know. It never really seemed to work well for me. Anyway, back on the Synology, there are even apps for mobile devices that look really fun. I haven't dug into this at all, but I found iOS apps, Apple Watch apps, and even Apple TV apps. I presume there are equivalent apps for Android as well. This should give me hours and hours of entertainment. But before we were allowed to dig into any of the fun of these apps, Stephen and I had an important goal. That was to get syncing going from the Drobo 5N2 to the Synology disk station and then reverse it, and hopefully before I go on vacation on Monday, tomorrow. But I'm sad to say that we have failed at our task. The Drobo 5N2 and Synology do not have a superset of applications that will allow me to sync them directly to each other. The Drobo doesn't support R-Sync, which is a pretty low-level standard, so that's a real shame. The Synology has a backup application called Hyper Backup, but we never crack the code on how to consistently get the Drobo to mount to the Synology and ever be recognized by Hyper Backup. Maybe someone listening can give us some advice, but we're out of ideas on how to do it. I was trying to avoid using the current solution, which was to run ChronoSync on a Mac Mini to keep the two Drobos in sync. This method works, but it's very fragile. Sometimes it's that ChronoSync doesn't like a file for some reason. Sometimes the Drobos don't mount via my script before the sync. Sometimes the Mac has rebooted after an update and it's waiting for a login password. It's probably at least once a month that I have to go fiddle with the darn thing. 
We might see if I can use Carbon Copy Cloner to back up from one to the other. It'll still be using the Mac to do that, but I'm not going to be able to test this whole idea until I get back from vacation. The good news is that Stephen won't have to follow along with just screenshots comparing to what he can find on the web. He bought his own Synology DS218 Plus for only 359 CAD, which is $260 US. He got it on sale on Amazon. He figures they're coming out with a newer two-bay model anytime soon, but he's happy he got a great deal. As I'm checking, though, the DS218 Plus is $300 on both B&H and Amazon. But in any case, it's going to be super fun to learn with him on this. So stay tuned for more Synology fun as I finally get to play with something truly new to me. Well, that's going to wind it up for this week. Don't forget to send in your audio reviews for me for next week and a script if you have one. You can do that by sending it to me at allison at podfeet.com and you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You really want to come go get me down to uh, at least minimum wage, don't you? Go to podfeet.com slash Patreon and pledge your support. If you'd rather make a one-time donation, you can always do that at podfeet.com slash PayPal. If you want to join in the community discussions, we have one in Facebook at podfeet.com slash Facebook and another one, and actually I have a preference for it, podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live shows and you could do this to listen to uh, or to watch the uh, live broadcast of the WWDC this week, go to podfeet.com slash live. You can do that also on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.